the Blaze Radio Network. On demand. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, everybody, and thank you for being part of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Well, uh, this particular show, uh, I am preparing just after uh, Judge Roy Moore won the seat against uh, uh, the mainstream candidate, the Mitch McConnell candidate. And I'm not going to make the whole show about politics uh, in that sense. In other words, I'm not going to sort of carry on and beat that dead horse. Um, I do think that President Trump learned a lesson from that. He backed the wrong candidate in order to, and I'm sure he had a calculation, to placate mainstream GOP folks and to uh, to show that he's a team player and to sort of give the mainstream Republican Party a little bit of a sense of, you know, he's not off the reservation. He's part of it all. But he certainly does acknowledge now that that was a mistake. He, uh, he abandoned his principles, basically. And the, exactly the same people who voted and elected Judge Roy Moore are the same people who elected him. And uh, I shouldn't say they, I should say we, to tell you the honest truth. And uh, I, I would also add that uh, we do not have limitless patience in the sense that um, we don't want to go to any further in the direction of a situation where important decisions that affect the quality of our lives in profound ways are, these decisions are made by people who have contempt for us, who do not consult us, and uh, who care absolutely nothing about us. And in this sense, I, I think most of us, many of us, feel that uh, Republican majority leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, is the equivalent of Nancy Pelosi. They, I bet the two of them have a very fine collegial relationship, and I don't see how that's possible. In this day and age, that's not possible. In other words, um, could I sit down and share a comfortable cup of coffee and sit down and have a pleasant, cordial conversation uh, with somebody who is doing everything they can to increase Muslim immigration uh, to the country in which I live. Could I sit down and have a perfectly delightful coffee in a uh, coffee shop belonging to a national chain whose name will not be mentioned because they are not official sponsors of the show? Uh, could I sit down with somebody who is an aggressive proponent of Planned Parenthood and, uh, and taxpayer-funded abortions? And could I sit down with that person and, let, you know, let's have a pleasant conversation and talk about the weather? I'm sorry, I just don't think I can. Now, I can sit down and talk to people with whom I don't agree on, on less critical matters. Sure, I do that all the time. I, I don't only... Uh, talk to folks who agree with me on everything. There's very few people who agree with me on everything. But when it comes to critical matters, my goodness, and uh, nothing could be a, a, a greater gulf than that which separates today 
conservatism from liberalism in the United States of America. And so if the uh, majority leader, the Republican leader in the Senate, uh, is somebody who is who doesn't see the gulf between him and, shall we say, uh, Mrs. Pelosi, uh, that's a real problem, a real problem. So uh, what's going on there? Well, it's exactly what's going on or what just has happened with the tremendous, shocking victory of the AFD, Alternatives for Germany, uh, Conservative Party, in the uh, the recent elections. Now, Mrs. Merkel won again, but by a narrower margin, uh, her party did take a beating because of only one reason, and that is a party whose entire raison d'etre is uh, immigration. In other words, it's in a sense, it's the equivalent of what's going on in America, where only one candidate recognized that uh, it is our lives that get impacted by immigration. Uh, it's our lives that get changed. And uh, it's we who do not live in gated enclaves or in the penthouse in uh, east side of Manhattan, condo towers or cooperatives. It's we who deal with the day-to-day -day impact of what happens as the country is flooded by people whose culture could not be more antithetical to the values that have built America. And the values to which most of us heartily subscribe today just as surely as we did our people, our kind of people, did 100 years ago and 150 years ago and 200 years ago. Um, in other words, the sense of self-reliance, not throwing yourself on the state, wanting to limit state power. Uh, as part of that sense of independence. We like cars better than public transport. We like having our own uh, firearms instead of rather hoping that somebody will come and save us if we dial 911. Uh, American values run very deep within our culture, but they don't run deep within our ruling class, and neither do they run deep uh, among many of those immigrating to the United States, not because of its values, but in order to plunder the country. Uh, the same thing we've watched since 2015 and earlier. We've watched what, what has happened in, in Germany, and it's been an absolute calamity. Uh, it's all very well for Mrs. Merkel to say, we can handle a million refugees. She doesn't have to pay the price in any way at all. And uh, it's, it's kind of interesting. She doesn't even have children who have to worry about the future. So obviously, she can talk in those terms. Uh, in, a, uh, in, a, in a silly and childish attempt to say, me too, me too, the uh, pimply adolescent who runs Canada, Mr. Trudeau, uh, tried to imitate her and uh, also said, oh, Canada will, pro this is a, a few months ago, Canada will provide a, a relief and, and acceptance for, for immigrants and refugees from all, you know, it was one of these feel-good statements, again, of somebody who'd never have to pay the price in any way at all for his dangerous and short-sighted policies. Anyway, you won't be shocked to hear that recently, uh, just a few days ago, as a matter of fact, he issued a statement saying, uh, not so quickly, uh, people who didn't get asylum in America don't think you're going to get in Canada. Uh, don't think you just come across the border, you'll be able to stay. He had to backtrack. 
and uh, he was extremely uncomfortable when one or two reporters trying to push him and said, well, are you taking back <laughs> your statement of a few months ago? Anyway, back to Germany. And, uh, and here I have to uh, talk about um, the uh, reaction of my own people, the reaction of the Jewish community. Now, you know, and I've told you many times before, there isn't really such a thing as the Jewish community any more than there's such a thing as the black community. Uh, a community is made up of people who share values rather than people of the same skin color or people who subscribe to, um, uh, to uh, uh, something superficial. But today, the Jewish population of the United States of America, and for that matter of Europe as well, uh, is not unified by a belief system. Uh, if anything, it's, it's tribalistic, which is primitive and ugly and horrible and wrong. Uh, the, the truth is that uh, when somebody says, I am an evangelical Christian, you got a pretty good idea at that point of what his value system is. I think it's very likely that uh, he opposes abortion. I think it's very likely that uh, he prefers conservative political candidates. I think it's pretty likely that he believes in Second Amendment rights. I think it's pretty likely that he thinks the Bible is one of the most, if not the most important document of human history. Uh, you know, you can, you can pretty much predict. If somebody says, uh, I'm a serious and orthodox Roman Catholic, then... I pretty much know what his value system is. And in many ways, it's not going to be that different from mine. Uh, if, uh, if somebody says, I am a Jew, I'm an American Jew, my friends, unfortunately, you do not have the slightest idea of what his value system is. Because that statement, I am a Jew, could be made by Rabbi Daniel Lappin, your humble host. Fine, okay, your host anyway. Uh, and I am a Jew is a statement that could be made by uh, Senator Chuck Schumer. It could be made by um, uh, Mr. Soros, the, um, the, the far-left agitator and financier of the left. Uh, that same statement could be made by a lot of different people. Now, if somebody says, I am an Orthodox Jew, that already narrows it down. At that point, we've got a much better idea of the set of values. But if you just say, I'm a Jew, it doesn't mean anything. Um, so uh, the, the uh, reaction of Jews to the win of the, uh, of, of the German party, Alternatives for, German, for Germany, is very interesting indeed, because the Jewish organizations, uh, Anti-Defamation League of Nebrith, um, American Jewish Congress and, and, and a number of organizations like that um, shriek in outrage. Why? Because their value system uh, is not Jewish but liberal. And that's a really important thing to understand. Uh, most of organizational Jewish life in America is in the hands of the far left, and all they try and do is give it a veneer of Jewish uh, endorsement by saying, well, you know, we're a Jewish organization and we favor Planned Parenthood, or we're a Jewish organization, and we want to uh, elect Hillary Clinton. I mean, this is going on all the time. So, obviously, you can imagine how it makes people like Susan and myself feel. You can imagine how it makes um, many of our uh, friends and associates in the Orthodox Jewish community in America, uh, we feel um, humiliated, we feel mortified, we feel angry 
when that happens, but there's nothing to be done other than education, just letting people understand what the reality is. And so uh, if you, and look, it pains me to say what I'm about to say, but uh, my solemn mission on the Rabbi Daniel Appen show is uh, not only to reveal how the world really works, but it is to uh, speak very, very truthfully and honestly to the best of my ability uh, to correct myself if I make any errors. And so I, I have to tell you that the Charles Schumer and Soruses of the world um, really do believe that uh, Christianity is a greater threat to Jewish life than Islam is. Okay, they're wrong. Do I, do I have to spell it out? Of course they're wrong. I don't want to take the time now to explain the thought process that brings them to where they are. But it'll help you understand if you think of the Demic if, if you think of uh, the Jewish community, that part of the Jewish community, and it is a very large part of the Jewish community, if you think of them as the circumcised wing of the Democratic Party, uh, that'll help you understand that. But the bottom line is that uh, I am horrified when I hear these Jewish organizations shrieking about the AFD, the Alternatives for Germany party that did so very well in this election, and by the way, which I think is a wonderful thing, I really do, uh, because they will limit Muslim immigration and they will start, if they have the power, they will start forcing integration. Uh, they will uh, work against the dangerous parts of many towns in Germany that have become uh, don't enter zones for white people. Uh, they will be um, down on Muslim violence against Jews. It, it's a wonderful development and, and one that was almost inevitable uh, given the direction in which Merkel has taken the party, uh, the, the country over the last two or three years. Uh, and look, I, I understand where she's coming from and I understand Germany's uh, World War II history. All of that I understand. But the fact is that uh, ordinary German people who have to bear the brunt of uh, a massive influx of hostile, aggressive, uh, young Muslim males uh, intent on plundering economically and sexually, uh, they are the ones who bear the brunt of it. And so, to be honest, I, I wasn't in the least bit surprised by the triumph of uh, the Alternatives for Germany, and, uh, and I expect to see greater progress in the future there, although one of the things that will happen almost immediately is that uh, this will force mainstream German parties to move much more aggressively on the immigration problem. In other, they call it, by the way, in political speak, and you'll see this all over the place, they'll, they call it, we must shore up our right wing. <laughs> in other words, right, they lost a whole lot of people who would ordinarily have voted for Merkel. Uh, they lost them to the Alternatives for Germany party over immigration. So don't be surprised to hear them uh, saying and speaking uh, a little bit more. But rhetoric isn't action. And I just don't think that a lot of people will be fooled very much by that. And so uh, uh, Jewish organizations have sadly, not so much in Germany, by the way, more in America. In Germany, actually many Jews correctly, in my view, voted for the Alternatives for German par uh, Germany Party. And they were quite right because the danger on the streets of Berlin, the streets of Frankfurt, if you're a Jew, and, and by the way, um, if, uh, if I were visiting Germany, would I walk in the streets with, a, with my yarmulke on, with a skull cap on? I don't know. I'm not sure I would. 
because it is an invitation to an assault. And, and, and that's in, in France, it's in Germany, it's in Sweden, it's in a number of countries now. So um, <clears throat> who is the threat? Look, here is the problem. Like many people, Jewish organizations on the left uh, drive uh, their organizations with their eyes m more on the rearview mirror than through on the windshield. Instead of looking at the road ahead, they spend most of their time looking in the mirror at the road gone by. So they're obsessed with World War II and Germany and the Holocaust and Nazism and Hitler. And so uh, they see right-wing party and they say, oh, they must be Hitlerian, they must be Nazis. Um, you know, I really don't think too many Jews on the streets of Germany have been hurt by a Nazi in the last 20 years <laughs> or 30 years. I don't think that's happened. But many Jews on the streets of Germany have been um, seriously hurt by young Muslim males. So that's where the danger lies. So if you really care about Jews, you should be supporting the Alternatives for Germany. You should be supporting that party, not Mrs. Merkel. Merkel is the enemy if you are a Jew in Germany. But since uh, they, the left makes common cause with Islam, and I'm working on a new book right now that will help explain Exactly. Well, it's not a new book. It's a reissue of my older book, America's Real War, which will explain why there is this strange and unholy alliance between the political left and Islam, both in Europe and the United States of America. And so uh, uh, they, they're very upset. They cry, oh, the Alternatives for Germany says that, uh, that there shouldn't be so much obsession with the Holocaust in Germany anymore today. Well, they're right. I understand that Jewish organizations exist in order to sort of keep on and on about the Holocaust. And look, I, I'm not going to take time to uh, cover my tracks here and, and explain the caveat that, yes, the Holocaust is terrible and was one of the worst things that's ever happened in history. All of that's understood. You'd have to be a blind ignoramus not to know that. Um, but you can believe all of that and still say, it's enough, you've got to move forward. Uh, I've said this publicly many times before, unfortunately, getting into serious uh, difficulties with my own community, when I've said I do not understand why the children of a farmer in Kansas have to spend three units in middle school learning about the Holocaust. I'm sorry. It just isn't that important. I'm sorry. Right? They're not about to go out and, and beat up Jews. That's not who's doing it in America today. And as to why people who are not Jewish, people who are Christian or whatever other faith, have to spend time in American public schools covering units, it's enough. Stop with the Holocaust already. It's enough. Why do I say that? Because I really do care about Jews, like I do about certain other people, most other people. Uh, and the truth is that other people are irritated by it, just as Germans are. It's enough. Stop beating us up over it, right? It's 70 years ago. It wasn't even our parents. It was our grandparents, for heaven's sake, right? We have to move on. We can't run our affairs, our public affairs, on the basis of constantly groveling for Jewish acceptance about the Holocaust. Okay, that's, that's what I've said. 
And as you can imagine, um, I get badly beaten up by Jewish organizations. And I mean that very seriously. It's, uh, it's, it's been one of the, the more challenging aspects of my public life in that um, this, uh, as you can imagine, makes me uh, very unpopular in the uh, Chuck Schumer, uh, George Soros quarters and, uh, and their many minions. So uh, uh, that is the point. Uh, when you hear Jews decrying what happened in, uh, in, in Germany on the election, they're wrong. They happen to be the noisiest uh, in the Jewish community, and so you hear about them, but unfortunately uh, they are wrong, and uh, it is one of the brighter signs on the European political horizon. Just as I've said all along, the election of Donald Trump was one of the brighter signs in, in the last... Uh, uh, 15 years of, of American politics. So there we are. Uh, we um, oh, moving on. Um, we'll come back. I want to talk just a little bit about uh, music, and um, and then after that, we're going to resume my interview with uh, Judy Gruen, the author of a book called The Skeptic and the Rabbi, and it's a story of how a very secularized young Jewish woman uh, found faith. Uh, how her friends reacted to her finding faith and um, uh, what has happened in her life since then. The rabbi in the title uh, refers to me. I was uh, privileged to play a role at that stage in her life a few years back. At any rate, I am your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Quick break, and then we'll carry on with uh, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. You want to save money in a place that gives you growth, control, and certainty without stock market risk or tax risk, and you want guarantees and you want it all tax-free. That's a tall order. But you can get all of that with properly designed, participating whole life insurance. Most people think life insurance pays after you're dead. That's true. But you can have tax-free access to use your life insurance while you're alive get the free book to find out how call 702-660-7000 rabbi daniel lapin returns with more of how the world really works on the blaze radio network on demand welcome back to the rabbi daniel lapin show where i your rabbi reveal how the world really works and uh, i used to uh, include a magazine, a monthly magazine called The Scientific American in my regular reading. And, uh, and invariably, I would find things in, if not in every issue, in, in almost every issue, I would find things of uh, real value in gaining a deeper understanding into how the world really works. Unfortunately, over the last 10 years or so, the, the magazine has become increasingly politicized. And um, I don't want to spend time giving you examples of that now, but uh, you know you can you can well imagine that global warming was a massive aspect of the magazine, and then it was climate change was a big part of that, and so all the really great uh, things you could count on Scientific American for was subsumed in in some of this uh, drum banging for the uh, aggressive international left. And so, uh, uh, so I haven't been following Scientific American regularly, but 
happily, uh, I have a large number of truly wonderful listeners. That's you, blushing, right? Uh, you may well be blushing because you are exactly who I'm talking about. A large number of wonderful listeners who um, know what my interests are and who go out of their way to shoot me information that pertains to things that interest me. Uh, I just love it when I receive an email or, uh, or some uh, form of communication by which some of you say, here's something you'd be interested in. Well, anyway, um, Judd sent me this one. And it, it, it's back a little bit of a, of a way. It, was, uh, it came out in summer 2012 um, was when Scientific American, and I didn't know anything about this until now. And so I immediately wanted to bring it to your attention as well because it does absolutely shed more light on how the world really works. And uh, the, what happened is uh, the, um, the Artificial Intelligence Research Council in Barcelona, it's, uh, it's part of the, I'm not sure whether it's Spanish government or Spanish academia, but whatever it is, doesn't matter. They realized that there is a huge database um, containing about um, uh, about a million songs, and um, they're all in digital format. And um, it's called it's called the Million Song Dataset, by the way. And, and you you can find it online yourself if you're interested. But don't try and download it. By the way, it's about 300 gigabytes long, <laughs> which is enormous. Anyway, not important. But what is important is that. Um, this enabled the researchers to examine huge numbers of songs that were released, and interestingly enough, they chose 1955 up to the present time, right, up to 2012. Now, I'm very happy they did that because you've heard many times from me that I find the crucial date at which uh, there was a precipitous drop off the cliff in terms of American coherence and American adherence to American values, I, I always uh, see that as, you know, early 1960s. You know, for convenience sake, I say 1962, although obviously you cannot uh, pinpoint epochal changes down to the day or the week or the month or even the year. But it's somewhere there. So 1955 is an excellent place to start examining music. And their theory, the, uh, the, the, the hypothesis with which they launched the survey, the study, was as cultures and societies change, wouldn't it be interesting if their music reflects that change? And sure enough, they began analyzing the music. All right, And you're talking about they've got a million songs. And they can examine how these uh, songs have changed between 1955 and uh, 2010, 2012, whatever it was. And um, all that they have to do now is figure out what the main criteria by means of which you measure. In other words, you can't 
do a scientific study based on do we like the music or you know what is the music appealing or can you dance to the music? No, these are all subjective things. So how do you find objective characteristics? Well, they did. They found a number of them. And um, for, so one of them, for instance, is uh, they called pitch, okay, which is the harmonic content of the piece. Basically the complexity, it's, it's chords, the melody, the tonal arrangements, all of that falls under pitch. Then they have timber, right, not like lumber, not like wood, T-I-M-B-E-R, but T-I-M-B-R-E, the timber, which is more the, 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 the color and texture, the tonal quality of the music. Uh, they also measured loudness, which is very important, by the way, um, because one of the things they discovered, and this one comes as a surprise to you any more than it surprised me, is that music has got louder and louder since 1955. Now, uh, you have to understand that loudness is an intrinsic quality of the recording. Don't confuse it with listener-controlled volume. Right? You can change the volume on music you listen to. That's, that's irrelevant. But basically, when you record music, that audio signal is recorded at a certain uh, voltage value, which corresponds to the quality they call loudness. And uh, you won't be shocked to discover that the, the loudness has been climbing steadily since 1955. Uh, but those aren't the only things. Right? Those aren't the only things at all that, uh, that they discovered. They discovered a lot of very interesting stuff. Now, you, you would be surprised to discover that loudness comes at the expense of dynamic range, right? Those, those of you who are, who are into music will, uh, will know what I mean by dynamic range. Those of you who are not uh, will get a sense uh, that the, the more loudly the song is recorded the less you're likely to find anything in the music that stands out as particularly punchy or, or grabby, if, if you know what I mean. So the more loudness with which the, the, uh, the music is recorded, the less richness and the less depth there can be in the recording. So uh, basically, you can see then that the, the loudness measure over the years since 1955 has moved in the direction of less, less subtlety, uh, less richness, less depth, and more bang, 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 you know, more, more. Look, it, this, is, this is very interesting because um, what they are showing, and again, the, the ability to measure so many songs over such a nice long slice of time is really useful. Uh, they've discovered that the loudness seems to have gone up by about a decibel every eight or nine years, I believe that was, which is very significant. So that has gone up. Um, that's not the only thing that has gone up. The um, timber, you remember I, I, I alluded a little bit earlier to timber, which is the, the sound, the, the color of the sound, if you know what I mean. By the way, if you, if you want to sort of get a sense of timber, listen to the music behind the vocals on some of the ABBA recordings. You remember the Swedish uh, band of the 70s, who, by the way, I believe are getting together for a comeback in about a year's time, but uh, that's a different subject. But you'll, you'll hear there... Um, you, you really will hear color texture and tone quality. Well, 
that's gone down dramatically. As, uh, as far as pitch is concerned, the, um, the, the basic pitch vocabulary, as it were, has, has stayed pretty constant. In other words, the same notes and chords that were popular in 1960 are still popular today. But to sort of use a, a, an English language term to apply it to music, and, and it makes sense, the syntax is much more restricted than it used to be. So in other words, musicians today are much less adventurous in moving from one chord or note to another. Uh, instead, they just tend to move along doggedly down that same path that, that with which the piece of music begins, not the way that uh, it used to be. By the way, again, you want to listen to a long piece of music that, that is an exception to this. Uh, Queen's uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, of course, is a, is a great example of something that sort of starts off with uh, a piece lifted almost the opening uh, few, uh, half a minute, a uh, little bit, maybe, yeah, maybe about half a minute, uh, is lifted right out of a piece of Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach. And, uh, and you know, it, it dances all over the musical landscape, Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody. But, uh, but generally speaking, the study showed that, uh, that that's not the case. Music is becoming louder. Uh, it is becoming less complex. Um, it's becoming more of a pulsating rhythm rather than a complex piece of music using a complicated set or, if you like, a, com a complicated vocabulary of sounds. So, um, you know, there, there are a number of takeaways from this, I think. One, of course, is that... Uh, you know how many people, and me as well, by the way, for, for a long time I've been, oh, the music today is not as good as it used to. And this is certainly true on so-called classical music, symphonic music, stuff that's written in the 20th century and, and right now for the most part, I've, I've consistently said is unadulterated garbage. It's complete nonsense for exactly the same reasons. And uh, I've also said that um, pop music is just not what it used to be. Uh, you know, when, when was the height of it? I, I don't, I'm not a music historian. I sort of just know what I like. But I have felt that music since the 90s, in, in my way of thinking, is not just music I don't care for, but it's actually bad. It's not as good as it used to be. Well, now this study confirms it. It validates it. And that's absolutely true. That is how it is. Um, so... Um, uh, a guy called Mike Conrad, in, writing in the American Thinker, made some really interesting points um, on, you know, apropos of this as well. Because once I started hearing that um, that that there is scientific validation from about <clears throat> five or six years ago in the Scientific American that uh, that music has become measurably and and noticeably worse, uh, then I started looking around and discovering that. You know, I, I'm far from the only person to have noticed this and, uh, and far from the only person to be interested in it. And um, one of the observations that a serious musician makes said that a, if a culture is a strong, vibrant, vital culture, it should produce a, a new form of music every 10 to 20 years or so, roughly speaking, something like that. 
Um, and, you know, if you think about it, uh, says Conrad, that's absolutely true. Um, in the early part of the 20th century, there was ragtime, and then uh, South America sent over tango and stuff like that. By the 1920s, jazz had taken hold of the culture. Then came swing and bebop in the 40s. F you know, 50s, you, you know what, you were, what, what was out there in the 1950s. Rock and roll came in the end of the 50s and the 60s. And, uh, and this has been going on. But what's happened since the invention of rock and roll, right? The rock and roll hits, uh, shall we say, 1960. Again, you, you want to go with my calendar, 1962. <laughs> but, uh, but you get the idea. Uh, and so what's happened since rock took a hold? What, what has followed after rock? And, um, you know, disco rap music, hip-hop, and I'm sorry, I, I just don't accept that. That I mean, I, think, I, I do think they are bad forms of music. I think they're degenerate. I don't think that they're innovative in any way at all, and I think they're basically, they appeal to the primitive. Uh, when a car goes by with the windows open and a speaker blaring out rap music so loudly that I fear for the bone density of the driver, uh, you know, I don't think to myself, gosh, I hope he stops at a stoplight so I can listen to more of that music. Rap is not music. Hip-hop isn't music. I'm sorry. Uh, disco music, for heaven's sake, it's, it's primitive. It's so basic. There's nothing to it other than the pulsating rhythm, and, and, it's, and it's a sexual rhythm, obviously, as well. Right? That if you listen to um, classical symphonic music, go back to Johann Sebastian Bach, you will hear rhythms through the music as well, but they are not the rhythms of sex. It's a different kind of thing. So um, we, uh, we have to understand that what's been going on in music reflects very accurately what I believe has been going on in the culture as well. Uh, by the way... Um, I don't want you to think that your rabbi uh, is dismissing everything that's coming out in music as, as complete garbage. That's not true. In a general sense, it's very, very true. I, I stand by that solidly. But at the same time, some interesting stuff and complicated, some, some worthy music is coming out. Uh, and, you know... Um, Elton John has done stuff. Um, Andrew Lloyd Webber has done, stuff. and there's a bunch. There's a bunch of good stuff. I mean, I could make a list of of popular music that's come out in the last, uh, say, quarter of a century, the last 25 years, and it would be a fairly sizable list. Um, good music, good music, but you simply cannot say that that is the general pattern. The overwhelming bulk of what's coming out is not only unadulterated garbage. But it's, um, it's primitive, it's savage, it's bad music. It's music that reflects a bad, deteriorating culture. It's a problem. Anyways, um, I'm, I'm, I'm just submitting this for, for your reflection. Um, and, you know, you'll tell me what you think. Uh, I think you'll notice that... Um, Anytime there is a, a show on the radio, uh, or even, by the way, on uh, Sirius XM, where they, where, they, where they will do, you know, six hours of Broadway shows, 
there's a lot of Broadway music, but you can do what I've done many times, which is just sort of get a sense of where the music comes from, which shows, and you will see that if you listen to, um, uh, I don't know, you know, a hundred Broadway tunes, 80 of them will be tunes that were written before 1965 or thereabouts. I'm serious. It, it's very, very noticeable. The better music in on Broadway is the earlier music. Um, and then the only question is whether you would agree with me that uh, music is a reflection of our society. Music is a reflection of our culture. And uh, if, and oh, by the way, and I, I certainly do accept that it's a two-way street. Not only does music current music reflect the, the growing degeneracy of American society. I agree with that, but it's also true to say that it has contributed to that. Uh, remember, one of the ways that the world works is that equations are true and read in both directions. And so if we say, um, uh, if we write an equation, H plus H plus O equals water, that's certainly true. If you take uh, two, did I say H, uh, if I say H plus H plus O, if, I think that's what I said. If, uh, if you take two atoms of hydrogen and you bond them to one atom of oxygen, you will end up with a molecule of water. That's absolutely true. But it's also true we can read that equation from right to left. If you take a molecule of water, you can break it down into two atoms of hydrogen and one atom of oxygen. And so in exactly the same way, if there is an equation linking uh, the state of American culture and the kind of music we've got. Uh, the culture produces bad music and bad music contributes to the degeneracy of the culture. That is just a, a, a real reality. Okay, folks, uh, what we're going to do now is um, we're going to move on to the rest of my interview with Judy Gruen. The book was called The Skeptic and the Rabbi. And uh, you'll be finding out what is the difference between the ways that Judy's Jewish friends reacted from the way her Christian friends reacted when she decided to abandon her secular liberal lifestyle and become uh, finding she found God and became a Bible-believing Jewess. Uh, how did people react? And it, it will uh, remind you of some of the material I gave you in the opening segment of today's show. So it'll sort of reflect back on that a little bit. But at any rate, uh, when we come back, we'll continue with my interview with Judy Gruen about her book, The Skeptic and the Rabbi. Uh, meanwhile, the website is rabbidaniellappin.com, as you well know, rabbidaniellappin.com. And remember, there's two L's there, right? L at the end of Daniel, L at the beginning of Lappin, rabbidaniellappin.com. Head over to the website and um, take a look. We've got some really nice uh, sales on a number of, uh, of our resources right now. Uh, one of the reasons for that is we're in the middle of the, the, the Jewish Biblical Festival period, which means we close our store for business a large number of days. So for the days that we are open, uh, we wanted to make sure that uh, you were repaid for your loyalty and <laughs> repaid for your inconvenience of uh, coming. But at any rate, head over to rabbidaniellappin.com 
and take a look at what we've got available. By the way, that's also the place, if you come across information as, you know, you're, you're an interested person in the culture, you see things, I can't see everything, you're part of my eyes and ears as well. If you see stuff that you think I should know about, please don't assume I know about it, go to my website at rabbidaniellappin.com, there's a way to contact me there, and shoot me an email uh, telling me what I need to be looking at. Maybe you put a link in as well, just to make it really easy. So appreciate that, and all of you who do that all the time, thanks a lot. It really is very useful indeed. Okay, back with you in just a moment. You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio. Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. All right, uh, can we continue? We can, but I would like to just thank you for having me on. You have been my teacher, my friend, and you really were the inspiration for, for this book, In Large Measure, and I'm just really honored and, and thrilled to be on your podcast with you. Oh, it's, a, it's an absolute pleasure. Uh, and, and look, I mean, it's, uh, it makes me feel very good as well. Uh, let me let me read something that uh, is really one of the nicest things that have been written about me. I mean, I I had the, the broadest grin on my face when uh, when Susan and I were reading this together. So you're talking about uh, your first experience meeting me at the Torah study class. Um, in a well-cut gray suit and tie, Rabbi Lappin smiled and nodded at the people filing in. Presiding at a lectern in front of the fireplace, I noticed the bookshelves on either side of him were crowded with classic titles of English literature, a multi-volume history of Winston Churchill, and books about physics and nautical navigation. <laughs> I had assumed his library might be Hebrew and Aramaic only. After all, my own Papa Cohen, who wasn't even Orthodox, had bookshelves filled mostly with Talmudic tomes. I assumed that orthodoxy meant narrow, and it was crucial to me that any orthodox rabbi I listened to was broadly educated. So, um, so my bookshelves were a, an early indication that we might actually uh, have a relationship. That's right. Your bookshelves were absolutely critical. I was assessing you immediately just, just from that. Um, you know... Uh, just as an aside, I, I, I may have shared with you, uh, the Jewish press did an, uh, a very nice interview with me. Uh, I think it was called On Your Bookshelf or something. It was about the books I'm reading and about the books I'm interested in. And I actually mentioned your book uh, to uh, Elliot Resnick, the interviewer, the interviewer from the, the Jewish press. But he also asked me what book would people be most surprised to see on my bookshelf. And I said, well, probably uh, Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf. Yes, that would be a surprise, wouldn't it? And so I, I think back, and uh, there are a number of books I have that I didn't have. In fact, the, the bulk of my library was not on those public bookshelves uh, that you saw that uh, evening long ago. Uh, because my awareness was that 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 kind of book and many others like it would probably uh, <laughs> make, make many a slightly anxious visitor gulp nervously. Right. And thank you for recommending my book. I actually just bought another of the books that you recommended in that interview, which was the uh, memoir 
the memoirs of, uh, I can't think of the name. She was a 17th century. Oh, yeah, Glickle of Hamelin. Yes, I just bought that book based on your recommendation. Oh, good. I'm so pleased. Uh, it's an important book. You you will get not only interest in it, but you'll actually get value out of it as well. So do let me know as, uh, as time goes by and you have the chance to, to go through it. I'd love to hear your reaction to it. Uh, but... Um, uh, I want to go back to, uh, to to sort of looking at the world through your eyes. So uh, I, I'm sort of obsessed with this transition point, you know. There you are Saturday morning at the mall, uh, enjoying restaurant meals at any restaurant at all with a wide variety of friends. You are a vivacious woman. You're a gregarious person. So... I know you had a whole lot of friends, probably many of them go back to Berkeley days or, uh, or, or um, uh, university days or, or beyond that even. And now, now all of a sudden, there had to have been one specific day on which you said, okay, uh, that was the last Saturday I'm going to the mall. That was the last Saturday I'm driving a car. From now onwards, uh, Saturday means Shabbat, right? There was some day like that. Yeah, I can't remember that day. I can remember very specifically, and it's also in the book, the last time I ate in a non-kosher restaurant because I had a really weird, weird experience that uh, could have been considered to be um, superstitious to have reacted the way I did, but I chose instead to look at it as, well, it, it's it's so strange that I, I got a pain up my left arm eating a tuna sandwich. It was just a tuna sandwich. I was, I was not eating non-kosher meat, which would have been a much more serious issue. But Jeff had already decided um, not to eat in non-kosher restaurants, but I was not ready to uh, go there with with him and make that commitment. And, this, and is, this is approximately how long before you married? Oh, oh no, we were married. Oh, you were already married. Okay, yeah. We were married, and um, you know, he kept on pulling my chain a little bit. You know, let's let's go here. Let's go a little further in in our commitment. Although he never pressured me, he wanted to grow himself. He wanted us to grow as a couple. It's very important that that I uh, be fair about this. He never insisted that I do anything, well, other than, you know, we were going to keep the Sabbath together and um, the laws of family purity, and I absolutely agreed. But when I got this weird pain uh, out of nowhere, when I was only in my 20s eating a tuna sandwich, I thought, there's two ways I can look at this. I can just ignore it because it's so bizarre, or I can say, Maybe, since this has been on my mind anyway, and this is on our radar screen, maybe I can choose to see something in it. And that's what I chose to do. And that really was uh, uh, not the last supper, but the last luncheon for me in a, in a non-kosher restaurant. Interesting. Well, I, I learned you know, from your husband the value of uh, slowly, slowly, you know, that not doesn't have to. Not, things don't have to happen right away, uh, and and also I got a dose of humility because uh, I must tell you that uh, I didn't see this working out at all. Um, while you and he were dating, in the in those early stages, 
I, I just couldn't see it. I saw he was on a, a track towards a, a connection with God, and uh, you were just in a totally other place. I didn't, I didn't realize that that you were going to be able to upend your entire life and turn things around. I simply didn't see that coming, uh, but, but but it did. You know, eventually, listening to you and also, you know, reading and um, expanding my mind, I realized that I had simply been not only ignorant, but I had been closed-minded and, and bigoted. That was not a comfortable realization. And I had to ask myself, are you going to head toward truth or are you going to live in your ego? And uh, I, I couldn't. I, I couldn't just stay stuck there. And this this part that you're, you're so candid and open on in throughout the book, this is part of what will be so incredibly valuable to people of every background um, who are undergoing either crises in faith or growth moments in faith. You know, everybody in their relationship with God has plateaus and then they have moments of growth and then they're plateaus again so these parts of the rabbi the skeptic and the rabbi are going to be immensely useful to people um, a moment ago you sort of glossed over the term the laws of family purity and i know obviously that that is the uh, euphemistic term well known in the jewish community but um, since you are so uh, forthright and, and honest and direct about the, the sexual component of, of Jewish laws, when we talk, as you, 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 you reference back to my uh, uh, rules and rituals and uh, restraints, um, maybe just uh, elaborate for just a moment on what we mean when we say the laws of family purity and, uh, and how all of that struck you. At, uh, at, as at the time you were dating and getting, get, beginning to think about getting engaged, uh, what was going on in your mind? Okay, so um, the laws of family purity mandate that uh, when a woman is uh, having her period, is in her menses, and for seven days afterwards, she and her husband do not have physical intimacy together. That is uh, meant, I mean, it, I, I can't explain it in the context of this podcast, but it, it's, it's a tough uh, commandment to uphold because for nearly two weeks out of every month, a couple is not able to be physical, physically intimate, not even kiss or hold hands. At first, uh, I thought this was sexist. I, I have a chapter about this too. I was, I was just appalled because I thought that it meant that Judaism considered a woman to be, quote, dirtied um, by her menses. Uh, it took a lot of reading and studying for me to understand that that really was not what it was about and again it's it's beyond the scope of our discussion now but it, uh, it was don't, yeah don't worry about the details i mean i'm i'm going to actually in the context and in the uh, follow-up to this podcast i'm going to do a show uh, on these jewish uh, sex laws and why why they function the way they do so so don't right. worry about that right and then a woman immerses in a ritual bath called a mikvah and only after she has uh, immersed uh, does she resume physical intimacy with her husband. So again, at, 
at first, given my background, not having ever heard the real reason for it or what's behind it, I thought it was just plain old sexist. I'm sure. I'm sure. And and it's, it's not an easy mitzvah, and in the chapter where I do write about uh, mikvah and my issues with it, and I also write about uh, a friendship with uh, a young couple that was in our Venice community, Rabbi Lapin, um, where that just was re so tough for them that, that they backed away from the lifestyle. And I have sympathy and empathy uh, because, again, you know, God expects a lot from us. At the same time, uh, looking, looking back on, on, the, on, on these years, um, are you able to say wholeheartedly that these laws enhanced your marriage and gave you a better life? Or do you have some doubts about that and you say to yourself, well, uh, you know, it could have gone either way? No, I... I I do believe it enhanced our, our marriage. Um, it doesn't mean it was always easy. Sometimes there's a little bit of stress on a relationship when there's that kind of a long lag time. Um, but the point of it is to emphasize the other parts of your relationship, the friendship parts. And um, I write about also in one of the last chapters uh, called Grandpa's Little Girl about how our wonderful, amazing, beautiful daughter, Yael, uh, actually was conceived right after we uh, uh, enhanced our own commitment to doing this mitzvah right. So how could I say anything other than that? We've been unbelievably blessed from it. Oh, well, I'm a, I'm a big fan of your kids, particularly your daughter. So uh, that, that's wonderful. Um, Judy, you, you know, you're, you were an outgoing, you are an outgoing and, uh, and um, extroverted person. You, 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 you had all these friends. You have to have had a huge circle of friends. And, um, and now, at a certain moment, you're no longer eating in restaurants, unless it's uh, some dinky little kosher restaurant somewhere. Uh, you're no longer available on Saturdays for social activities. How, Friday night, that's a biggie. No more Friday night events or parties because now Friday night is, is a Shabbat event. Um, did you lose friends? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I, but in fairness, and I really want to be very fair and honest, I think some of those friendships would have... Um, melted away over time just because of distance, physical distance, but a lot of it really was because of the value shift, you know, I had a paradigm shift in my life, and um, wasn't that long ago that, again, on Facebook, I saw a picture of some old friends from college, we had been very close with their, either their husbands or significant others. Um, they had gotten together in Los Angeles, where where we live, um, at a restaurant. They didn't invite me, and I have to admit, it it hurt for a minute. Um, even though there were other reasons for the friendship to have dissipated, but um, you know, there's no getting around it. And I've discussed this with some other friends who also became Torah observant. When you start to see the world in a different way, 
then it's going to affect some friendships. There, and there are people who have tried very hard, and I still have a couple of friends who are not Torah observant, and I really treasure the very few that I have left because there's only one or two. And <laughs> but, um, you know, it happens because what are you going to talk about? You talk about things where of shared values, and when you don't see the world in the same way, and you um, unfortunately politics can can become involved. I, I feel that some of my friends slowly backed away from me. I think that most of them probably still respect me, but you know they just don't see the commonality anymore. Yeah, no, that's that, that, that's that's exactly what I, I thought I would hear. Um, I want to ask you, and and I'm going to do that when we continue our conversation because that's as far as we're going to go right now. But uh, the book is called The Skeptic and the Rabbi. I'm talking with its author, Judy Gruen, G-R-U-E-N. Judy Gruen wrote The Skeptic and the Rabbi, and. Uh, it, I have to tell you, my friends, it was fascinating. Imagine, imagine what it's like to be able to see yourself through someone else's eyes. And whilst uh, I don't, I'm not, I'm not a major part of the book. Uh, the, the book is about Judy and her journey, but uh, but I am the rabbi in the title, and uh, and and there are many vignettes of me. It was fascinating for me to see myself. But separating that entirely, the book is humorous it's entertaining it's insightful it's emotional and you know what it's actually very useful useful to people of every single faith so um, head over to rabbidaniellappin.com and you can read more about the book and uh, take a look at it there or for that matter any other bookstore you like but uh, at rabbidaniellappin.com we are having uh, sales going on. You know why? Because we got the Jewish high holidays around about this time of the year, and um, we're shut. Our store is shut for so many days. Uh, whenever there's a biblical festival, the store is shut, and uh, and so we have special sales for the days <laughs> when it's open. We want to uh, compensate people for the annoyance and the irritation of going online and discovering, no, I cannot order something uh, right now. But um, unless unless you happen to have a calendar of the Jewish festivals, just go to rabbidaniellappin.com and you can read more about Judy Gruen's lovely book, The Skeptic and the Rabbi. Susan and I have not only enjoyed reading it once, but we've gone back to it again and again and again to chuckle about her incredibly accurate perceptions uh, about human nature in general and the Jewish community in particular. Uh, a whole lot of things you never even knew you wanted to know about Judaism in the skeptic and the rabbi. Um, okay, uh, quick break. We'll be back with you shortly. Spilling ancient solutions for modern problems in the areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something, and progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. 
We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Okay, talking with Judy Gruen, the prolific writer and humorist, well-known with uh, her newest book, and it's one that I am obviously passionately interested in. The book is called The Skeptic and the Rabbi. I am the rabbi in the title. She, of course, is a skeptic. And uh, not only uh, are she and her husband, Jeff, uh, dear friends over many, many years, um, the, uh, it, it's even more than that because we, we've gone through so much of life together. And in this book, Judy captures um, an entire journey of not only just herself, but there is a whole beautiful cast of interesting characters uh, who are part of her journey. Um, some of them willing and enthusiastic and, and others nervous and anxious. So um, let's uh, talk for a moment about the nervous and the anxious, shall we? Uh, firstly, you got a great piece in there and, oh, you know, um, I, I should have had a million placeholders in the book, but I, I wasn't really planning on on quoting a whole lot. You may be able to point me at it quickly and easily, Judy. This is where on a Friday afternoon you, you leave a professional conference at a hotel somewhere and oh, you're yeah. in a hurry to, to get home or something and uh -huh. you, you meet a, a Jewish guy in the elevator. That's right. Do you That's remember? Right. That's you remember? right in the introduction. Sorry? Yes. It is right in the introduction. Okay. Well, um, it's on page one. Uh, hold on. Oh, is it right? Oh, my goodness. Uh, it's right there, of course. Right there. Um, so I was seconds from a clean getaway. Yeah, she's just about heading out, and uh, and um, <laughs> this it really sets the, the mood of the book because uh, Susan and I were both laughing out loud uh, with this. Um, uh, so a, a guy... Uh, pulls the elevator door open, puts himself in, and now you've got somebody else in the elevator with you. And uh, he looked at the stuff on your luggage cart, and uh, most of the stuff's unremarkable, but the cart also held a tall red and white cardboard box printed with a peculiar description, kosher lamp, in nearly marquee-sized bold capital letters. You didn't need a journalism degree to have to wonder about that. What is a kosher lamp, my fellow traveler asked. One eyebrow arched, his tone was slightly mocking. And I was pretty sure that we were members of the same tribe. And so right there on page one, uh, you are putting your finger on something that I think is, um, is, if not unique to Judaism, it's certainly more aggravated in Judaism. And that is that when a Jew leaves the secular liberal lifestyle and moves into a relationship with God, he arouses not enthusiasm and admiration from his fellow co-religionists, but invariably um, a spectrum ranging from hostility to mockery and anger. Uh, mm -hmm. that's, the, that's right. Your Christian friends, I am sure, had no trouble at all with you becoming religious. 
Not only that, but uh, a couple of good Christian friends are featured in the book because mm -hmm. they played instrumental roles. And I mean instrumental roles. There's uh, Jeff's friend Charlie, who uh, during a junior year abroad in England told him he he must go during the spring break to Israel, which had never even crossed Jeff's mind. It was because of his own uh, Christian values, and he couldn't believe that there was a Jew who didn't want to go to Israel. And also, I mean, it's so filled with irony. When I was working as a copy editor at a Jewish weekly, I was stunned uh, and unhappy to, to hear many of the cutting remarks made by uh, other Jewish staff members but my, the senior copy editor, I was a junior copy editor, was Catholic, and she encouraged me on my journey. So Jeff and I both owe a lot of the encouragement that we got to uh, Christian and Catholic friends, not Jewish friends. Yeah, uh, that, that, is, that is very much the reality, and, uh, and it's something you bring out uh, very beautifully in the book, very real. Um, now we go to family. This is one of the questions. Whenever we have new visitors at our Shabbat table, uh, particularly people who've recently made a, uh, a journey into Judaism, one of my questions always is, tell me about the reaction of your family. And mm -hmm. unspoken in that is uh, my, um, my, my uh, follow-up, which is kept to myself, but my children all know it and uh, and inwardly smile, which is, you tell me how your family reacted, and I will tell you things about your parents and grandparents you wouldn't have imagined I could possibly have known. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, um, give us a, a bird's eye view of your parents and uh, and a quick shot of each of their parents, and then I want to hear how they reacted as uh, as this journey began. Well, my grandparents, who I mentioned earlier in the conversation, uh, also formed the backdrop along with you, Rabbi Lappin, to the story because my my father's father was a, a, a bacon frying, cigar smoking atheist. He he campaigned for uh, the American Humanist Association. He wanted nothing to do with God. Uh, and his second wife uh, was not my biological grandmother, but in every way I considered her my grandmother. They were fun and broad and intellectual, and my grandmother was a physician. And I wanted to be like them in a certain way, but my mother's parents, who were the European-born immigrants, even though they were kind of filled with angst and worry, they held to the tradition. And there was something about that that I knew was important. And I was trying to, to figure out for myself, is there any way to fuse the two of these so that I could be Jewish and have Shabbat, but also have a little more fun than my religious grandparents seemed to have. Um, my mother and was... if I may say, that's exactly what you and Jeff have done, isn't it? We've tried, and a lot of it was through your your influence, because you modeled that kind of certainly intellectual breadth and depth that was absolutely fundamental for, for both of us. And, of course, having a sense of humor and a sense of fun and adventure. 
Um, but when I did make this decision, you know, to to follow Jeff into this life, and this was, by the way, didn't happen immediately. We uh, dated for more than two years. We knew each other nearly three years by the time you performed our wedding 30 years ago. Right. Um, but my mother, I was a little sheepish around my mother because I was the loud Berkeley, uh, you know, liberal daughter. And uh, this scene is also in the book where we're sitting around uh, choosing flowers and talking about other details for the wedding. And out of, out of nowhere, because my mother was very private and more on the quiet side, she suddenly said to me, are you really going to go to the mikvah, meaning the ritual bath, like my grandmother did in Russia? You know, she was aghast. You know, what had happened to this, you know, liberal, secular daughter? So I had to start explaining myself. And, uh, you know, this memoir is a way not really of explaining myself entirely, but also... Um, trying to show that there was logic and um, immense value in the decision that, that I made because Orthodox Jews often find that they have to explain themselves and there's so much that looks kind of weird and strange from the outside. Um, I wanted it to I also wanted this to be an answer to other memoirs, several of them in recent years that were written by Orthodox Jews who left their communities in pain and anger and alienation. Oh, and don't the culture just love them? They do, and I am not doubting, I, it's not for me to doubt their stories. I don't uh, question their right to write their stories. But my goodness, the, the attention that they get, and these were people who were not known as writers. And I just, you know, part of the reason that I wrote this book is to show there is another side, there is a side that is beautiful. And I wanted to tell that side. Um, in terms of my, my family, mostly Jeff and I really had it easier than many of our friends. We did not have very serious conflict well most of the time i'm starting to think of some memories <laughs> uh, my aunt uh, may she rest in peace suddenly said to us before the wedding do you mean to tell me that i'm not going to be able to dance with my husband at your wedding because we had women's dance circles and men's dance circles so you know out of nowhere we would be put on the defensive and we were trying to be gracious, and I, I was still very insecure at that time. So Jeff often came to my rescue in these situations. Gosh, and uh, again, you know, if I just don't think this would happen in the Christian community. Somebody's invited to a wedding. You're supposed to be there to add to the joy of the bride and groom and the happiness of the wedding, and it turns into a religious interrogation. Well, my aunt actually had a wonderful time at the wedding. Unfortunately, she, she danced so hard that she twisted her ankle, and she hobbled over to me, and she said, you're right, this is the, the most fun wedding I've ever been to. Oh, that's, that's great. I'm sorry that she had to twist her ankle, but um, she did have a good time. I'm pleased for that, even, even if the good Lord decided she needed a lesson. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, Judy, how about, you know, look, 
so you know you're a professional you're a writer uh, there, there there have to have been a lot of times not just the conference story with which you open the book the skeptic and the rabbi but but other times where as a person of faith you stand out you're attracting undesired attention just by virtue of the fact that you know everybody knows you're religious you're the only religious person there um, what what is the best advice for people in that situation, Jewish or Christian, who find themselves uh, an unwanted center of attention um, because of their religious commitment? I think it depends where you are. Um, there are times now, unfortunately, where we Jews feel more vulnerable to anti-Semitism because we stand out for looking Jewish. Um, that can be a little scary when uh, this is already 10 years ago when Jeff and I went to England for vacation. We took our daughter with us and uh, Jeff did not wear his kippah, his yarmulke uh, in the, the tube. Uh, he wore a baseball hat, but um, that was not a comfortable feeling. But in terms of being in America, we still feel, thank God, very, very safe. And I think we need to hold our heads high and also though to make sure that we are behaving truly as a light unto the nation which means keeping a friendly smile on our face um, and being courteous and and really showing our our best face literally showing our best face forward sometimes um, Jews, especially those from more insular communities, have trouble showing that because there is a built-in insecurity and, and distrust, whether of the uh, encroachment from the secular culture or just from uh, past anti-Semitic experiences. But this does not help us. And as you, Rabbi Lapin, have pointed out so many times to such good, good effect, the, our experience here in modern-day America is not what it was in Europe, and we have to, you know, live in the times and um, and react accordingly. Yeah, uh, because even I mean, never never mind anti-Semitism, but within the Jewish community, that you have to have been at Jewish events where you experience a certain soft bigotry aimed at you because. Uh, you are you are identifiable as a God-fearing, Bible-believing Jew. Yeah, there's a funny scene. Uh, I think it's a funny scene where um, I went to a laughter yoga class, and uh, I didn't participate in every single activity because it involved, you know, touching strangers. And uh, the way I was dressed made me uh, kind of a, a, an open target. The two other Jewish ladies run it over to me right after the class is, is over, and they start peppering me with questions, including, um, I didn't think you were allowed to come out to things like this. You know, do you get out much? You know, <laughs> as if I was chained in the basement. Um, but then it got serious. And this, I spoke about this at my book launch event at, at our synagogue because I think it's a very important point. There is a certain worry that people are judging each other and whether uh, non-observant Jews or observant Jews, each fears that the other is judging the other. 
And this lady, when they, one of the ladies said to me, when she saw that I welcomed their questions, she said, isn't it true that Jews like you look down on Jews like us because we don't keep the Sabbath like you do? And I was very shocked that, you know, they suddenly got so serious so fast. But this comes up. And I think it's very, it's incumbent upon Jews who are Torah observant to be reassuring, to be uh, accepting. Mm. And it's very, very important because I think that the insecurity that I felt all those years ago because I was not keeping the Torah, they feel that too, a lot of them. And sometimes it's hidden under arrogance, but I think that what really it connects it is that feeling that yes we are jewish and it counts it matters but we don't really know necessarily how to express it um judy uh i know i've got to i've got to let you go soon but um uh, you've got you've got four lovely kids you really you and jeff have been blessed and uh, yeah uh you and jeff you both you know, I could call you Orthodox Jews by choice. Um, you both uh, turned your back on non-religious backgrounds, and you walked boldly forward into a new world. In many ways, you were reliving the whole Abrahamic experience, right? Where God says to Abram, "Leave the house you know, and you know, start moving. I'll, I'll lead you. I'll direct you." And that's really the way that uh, you and Jeff got to where you are. Um, your children now, um, I'm, I, I'm, I'm trying to put my finger on, on what it is I'm, I'm, I'm trying to ask you here. Um, they, do you ever feel that they've been deprived of the personal adventure, the personal voyage of discovery that you went on? Or, or have they had that? And and lastly, uh, have they all followed exactly in your path? And uh, and if not, how? Mm. Great questions. Um, well, yes, I suppose they have been denied the the discovery because they were raised in a Sabbath observant kosher home. They were sent to Jewish schools, but yet, as Jeff has said many times and he's absolutely right at a certain point they have to choose it for themselves they didn't go through what we went through um, they couldn't have um, but they still had to to choose it and uh, I can't remember who said this I think it's it's such a clever phrase that Jews are not uh, only considered the chosen people we have to be the choosing people it's not enough to be born into it we have to we have to make the choice um i'm sorry what was your follow-up question um i'm curious as to whether the children have followed exactly in your paths and um and if not in what ways have they diverged you said all those years ago I, there's so many things you said that i remember them exactly because they were so striking to me and one of the things that you had said to us i know what you're going to quote yeah that's, it'll never be exactly the same right that's right that our kids will either be a little more religious than you a little less religious than you um our sons uh are all all wear you know the traditional black hat the fedora on on the sabbath uh, they are 
quite, uh, to use the Yiddish word, from. Our daughter is certainly completely committed also. Um, she and her husband are a little bit more on the modern side. Um, there, you know, Jeff and I and some of our friends who also came from secular backgrounds, we kind of wish that our kids had a little stronger secular um, literary background, educational background, but when you're trying to raise kids in in a uh, dual curriculum, and the boys in particular have so much Talmudic information to uh, to absorb, there just isn't time for them to also read a lot of Shakespeare and yeah, right. uh, and so we feel a little bit sad and uh, about that, but. Uh, our son Noah, uh, who you know pretty well, he's a voracious reader, and he knows he knows a tremendous amount about a lot of things. Um, he has chosen to read more broadly, and I I wish all of them did. But you know, you can't have everything. I don't know any, and I will never know uh, a smidgen as much Torah as my own children know. So, you know. You, you've got to balance things out. We do the best we can. We are very proud of all of our children. Um, they're all married, and they are all committed, and they, they do us proud. Yeah, for good reason. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Well, uh, Julia, it's great talking, and uh, I, I can't help thinking that uh, we got to do some more of this, and, uh, and particularly as the, the book's fame spreads, and the book, folks, is The Skeptic and the Rabbi. As the, the book's fame spreads, I, I know you're going to be doing a whole lot more interviews and uh, people are going to be seeing a whole lot more of you. And I think you will uh, you will probably have some very interesting experiences. I'd love to talk to you down the road a little bit uh, about uh, some of the new insights, some of the new things you've learned, some of the new experiences you've had as you become known as the the voice behind the skeptic and the rabbi so um thanks so much i uh, I, I, I appreciate i appreciate how graciously you treated me in your book could have been a lot worse and uh <laughs> now we're, we're two good friends for that and uh, i i got over my uh my mistrust of you many, many, many years ago, and you've been such a good friend, you and Susan, and uh, we, Jeff and I both have nothing but gratitude for you. Uh, that's, that's lovely to hear, and uh, we cherish the friendship very much. Uh, we'll talk some more, and I know we'll be staying in touch. I'm, I'm, I'm very, very eager uh, to, to, to see how the book is doing. I know it started off magnificently, and um, we're going to encourage folks to, to visit the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, read about the book, The Skeptic and the Rabbi. Uh, not only will you gain an insight into things that are happening in a Jewish community that very few people know and understand, but you'll probably even learn more about me than you knew beforehand, whether mm -hmm. that's something you want or not. I don't know, but uh, but there it is. It's uh, I, I star in the skeptic and the rabbi. It doesn't happen often, but this time it really does. Um, Judy, I am going to wish you and your dear husband a Shabbat Shalom because uh, we are recording this interview. It is a Friday afternoon, so uh, we'll have to leave it here as you get ready and Susan gets ready to light the candles to welcome the Sabbath as the sun sinks below the western horizon 
and uh, please do stay in touch. Please give warmest wishes to your husband. Thank you very much, Rabbi Lappin. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Okay. Bye-bye. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Well, there we are on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, my friends. I do hope that you enjoyed today's show. It was a little bit of a variety, right? We, we started off with the, uh, uh, the win of Judge Roy Moore and contrasted that with the win of the Alternatives for Germany election uh, in Germany, and uh, we spoke a little bit about Jewish reaction to that. Uh, then we moved on from there to music and its relationship to American culture. And then we went to the rest of the interview with uh, Judy Grun, the author of uh, The Skeptic and the Rabbi. So we've sort of bounced around a little bit. There hasn't been one consistent theme throughout the show. Some of you uh, may not like that, so let me know. Uh, I did receive a number of emails the last time I did a show like that, people saying they enjoyed the variety during the course of the show. But I don't know, so uh, it's always good to find out how you feel. Um, that brings us pretty much to the end of, uh, of what we're going to cover today, everybody. So thanks very much for listening. Don't forget to go to the website at rabbidaniellappin.com. I'd appreciate that. And uh, also uh, thank you for being part of the show and for listening to the show. And uh, thanks for uh, helping spread the word on the show. You've been doing a great job of that, I can tell you, and I appreciate that very much indeed. Um, so all that remains is for me to wish you a week of good health and prosperity. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless. You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio.